In July 1483, not long after his coronation, Richard III began a progress through the Midlands and the north of England. Rightly, he thought that people needed to see him and pay their respects. He needed to impress upon the governing classes that normal service had been restored after a slight hiatus. He had to get the message out into the counties that there was no cause for alarm, except, of course, there was. Because whilst Richard was attempting to woo the Midlands in the north, a significant opposition was growing against him in the south. It was led by local knights and gentlemen loyal to the memory of Edward IV and fearful that his two young sons had come to some harm. Their concerns were encouraged by the Dowager Queen Elizabeth Woodville and her unlikely ally Lady Margaret Beaufort. While Lady Margaret's husband, Lord Thomas Stanley, accompanied the new king on his progress, she was in touch with not only the Queen, but also John Morton, Bishop of Ely, still at that point a prisoner in theory of the Duke of Buckingham. She was also communicating with her son, Henry Tudor, who was languishing in exile in Brittany. Though Margaret did not create the opposition to Richard, she certainly played a significant role in organising it, significant but actually not terribly effective as it turned out. What was it that Margaret Beaufort actually wanted? Because it's getting harder and harder to see beyond the vitriol and mythology that is currently peddled about her. What is clear is that Margaret had been working for the return of her son to England for years, but certainly not as king. She was no fool and she saw that by the second half of Edward IV's reign, political stability had been restored. In such circumstances, no one was remotely interested in crowning her son. Edward IV, as we have seen, was always inclined to reconciliation with his enemies, often to his own cost. It is therefore perfectly logical that he should bring Henry Tudor back into the fold, if possible. And it was possible because Henry posed a very, very small threat to Edward. It seems likely, then, that Margaret's negotiations with Edward to get her son home would have been successful, given just a little more time. Even after Edward's death, such a return was still possible. Then, kapow, Richard took over. But did that change Margaret's aim? Not immediately, no. In fact, you could argue with the benefit of hindsight, of course, that Richard's greatest mistake was not sanctioning Henry's immediate return as Earl of Richmond. Doing so would have stopped in its tracks the Autumn Rebellion because there would be no alternative figurehead for it. But of course, he didn't do that, and the moment Margaret saw that her son could not return whilst Richard remained king, she must have begun to work on a different plan. This, of course, is why the adherents of Richard III have pointed the finger at her about the fate of the princes. But I think it is clear from what little evidence we have of correspondence during the summer that rumours about the princes started very early on, most probably in July, soon after Richard's coronation, perhaps even before that. The only reason those rumours continued throughout the summer was that no one provided an explanation and thus the supporters of the late king, Edward IV, were gathering strength during the summer with the aim of freeing 
young Edward V and restoring him as king. Margaret Beaufort was committed to this, and the claims, again endlessly and mindlessly repeated online and in fiction, that she had been plotting to put her son on the throne for ages, are simply nonsense. She saw a golden opportunity to get her son back as a key figure in a newly restored regime, and she went for it. But sometime in the summer, the focus of opposition to Richard shifted. My own view, though I can't prove it, is that Margaret, always well informed, as was her husband Lord Stanley, got a whisper that the princes had been killed. Quite honestly, it would make no sense for Margaret to encourage her son to claim the throne unless she knew that the princes were dead. It would only cause far too much confusion and division amongst those who might support an alternative to Richard. Thus, Margaret's increasingly energetic fostering, both of domestic opposition and her son's claim, only really makes sense if she was certain the princes were dead. This is, of course, one reason why the Ricardians would suggest that perhaps Margaret was the one who killed them. What this ignores is the practical impossibility of that being the case. Margaret was just not in a position to effect the death of the princes. What few historians have ever focused on is the fact that the opposition seemed to accept word of the prince's death very easily. I cannot believe that those sort of experienced political operators would have switched allegiance from Edward V and his brother so suddenly and completely unless they were convinced of their deaths. How that occurred, we just don't know. But surely it had to be more substantial than Margaret Beaufort scribbling them a note to say, oh, by the way, the princes are dead. What about having my son as king? What is certain is that rebels stopped talking about Edward V as anything other than a victim and started talking about the Earl of Richmond as a possible king. And let's face it, they knew more about their horse than they did Henry of Richmond. Nevertheless, rebellion was stirring in the south of England and Henry Tudor became its focus. We'll never know for sure who was the brains behind the rebellion in the autumn of 1483. But it must have been Margaret or Elizabeth Woodville or John Morton or, I suppose, an alliance of all three. One thing I'm pretty certain about is that the man who gave his name to the rebellion, Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, contributed only confusion and chaos to the mix. The question has been asked many times. Why did Buckingham rebel against Richard, having been his chief ally in the seizure of power? It's been suggested that he was turned from the dark side, as it were, by his prisoner, the wily Bishop John Morton. This view asks us to believe that the Duke, searching his soul, found that he regretted supporting Richard and especially the death of Edward IV's sons. Well, I'm not buying that. Cast your minds back to Edward IV, a king who was prepared to forgive and employ even his worst enemies for the sake of unity and a quiet life. Henry Stafford was one of the foremost nobles of his day, yet Edward only wheeled him out on ceremonial occasions of state. He was given no governmental position or great responsibility to match his status. 
Why not? Well, it can only be because he was incompetent, which he was, or because Edward did not trust him. And remember, Edward trusted most men until they proved thoroughly untrustworthy. Richard must have known why his brother avoided relying on Buckingham. Yet Richard knew that in the council, he would need noble support to balance Woodville influence. And who better to do that than a disaffected and powerful duke? The trouble is that such a man remained untrustworthy. One suggestion from the near-contemporary Polydor Virgil was that Buckingham had been promised the lands of the extensive Bowen family inheritance and was disenchanted that Richard had not fulfilled his promise. Yet the evidence suggests that Richard was in the process of doing so when Buckingham rebelled, so that idea makes little sense. But if it wasn't remorse or greed that persuaded Buckingham to rebel, what was it? I suspect it was ambition. Always delusional about his own worth and full of his own importance, Buckingham himself had a claim to the throne as one of the ubiquitous spawn of the bloodline of Edward III. Did he believe that he could create chaos and emerge from it as king? It's possible, but also highly fanciful, as we shall see. He certainly created chaos, but not in a good way, and I would suggest that Buckingham's contribution was less than helpful to the rebellion's chances of success. So, let's look at how the rebellion played out. It was actually several rebellions, and when that happens, the key to success is effective coordination. Sadly, these rebellions lacked cohesion. Insofar as there was an overall plan, it was this. Spontaneous risings in southern England would be joined by the Duke of Buckingham, who would cross the Severn with his sizeable retinue. At the same time, Henry Tudor, backed by support from the Duke of Brittany, would cross the Channel with an invasion fleet, land somewhere on the south coast and join up with the rebels. The rebel army would then take London, defeat Richard and enthrone Henry. No doubt they would have a stab at achieving world peace while they were about it. As cunning plans go, this was not exactly that cunning. Richard was sitting in the north, still making friends, shaking hands and no doubt kissing babies. He clearly knew about the outbreaks of revolt in the south, though initially he would not have been aware of Buckingham's involvement. Wisely, he did not rush about like the proverbial headless chicken. Instead, he waited to see what would unfold. We should not underestimate this. It wasn't easy for Richard to wait, but it proved to be a very sensible policy. Had he raced south himself to do some immediate firefighting, he might have been vulnerable to other threats, notably Thomas Stanley, who surely must have been aware of what his wife was doing. And let's not forget that in every political crisis since 1459, potential rebels sought Thomas Stanley's support, and when they got it, for the most part, they were successful. It seems to me highly likely that Stanley was poised to intervene in 1483 if Richard appeared to be wobbling. He surely could not have forgotten his imprisonment only a few months earlier in July, and thus had no great love for Richard. However, when Buckingham popped up to oppose Richard, Stanley decided not to intervene. Were these two events connected? Did Stanley fear that a successful rebellion would benefit Buckingham if he was perceived to be leading it? 
quite possibly, because Stanley's power base in the northwest was adjacent to Buckingham's in Wales. Never forget that Thomas would support whichever royal candidate promised to enhance his family's fortunes and status. In the autumn of 1483, Richard III was better placed to do that than Henry Tudor, even though Henry was Stanley's stepson. And as ever, Stanley's support was vital. The rebellion began in Kent, frequently a hotbed of revolt in medieval and Tudor times. Round about the 10th of October, 1483. Simultaneous revolts might have gathered more momentum, but that didn't happen. Instead, revolts spread slowly to Wiltshire by the middle of the month and did not really take off in the southwest until November. By that time, the Johnny-come-lately Buckingham had already shot his bolt. Unable to raise much support for rebellion in Wales, he found that the elements, too, were against him. It was a stormy autumn in more ways than one for savage storms had an impact on the fortunes of the rebels. One effect was that Buckingham was unable to cross the flooded River Severn and join the other rebels. His much-vaunted retinue never materialised, and he was obliged to flee in disguise. Even that, he was unable to carry out effectively and was captured. It was a telling failure, for how often have we heard that only a rebel lord's household knights stayed with him to the end. Yet Buckingham, with all his power and wealth, did not engender such loyalty. That was the pale shadow of a man that Edward IV had rightly spurned. By the time Richard arrived to execute Buckingham at Salisbury on the 2nd of November, the revolt in the southwest had scarcely started, and the Duke of Norfolk and his son, the Earl of Surrey, were busily mopping up the Kent rebels. Richard then headed for the only remaining centre of revolt in Exeter. But where was Henry Tudor with his invasion fleet? The truth is that we don't actually know. It's not clear when he sailed from Brittany or when he arrived on the English coast. You'll be astonished to discover that the contemporary sources are not very helpful on this. But where was he intending to land? Poole? Plymouth? Exeter? Somewhere else? We don't know. Though my suggestion would be Poole, a large natural harbour well positioned between the various revolts. One account suggests that Henry's ships appeared off the coast at Poole but found little support and fled. But as usual, the dates of this don't quite fit, so it still remains a mystery. What isn't a mystery is that Henry's fleet, so vital to the rebellion, was also a victim of the weather. Scattered by storms at sea, Henry found only one other ship with him when he reached the English coast and was thus in no position to support the rebellion. Discouraged by news of several defeats for the other rebels, perhaps too he learned of the death of Buckingham, Henry had little option but to return to Brittany, his hopes of kingship in tatters. By early November, the rest of the rebels at Exeter had been defeated and the revolt was over. It remained to be seen whether the causes of the revolt would now go away. Richard must have expected some opposition to his rule at the start, though perhaps not from Buckingham, and he had dealt with it very effectively. Yet it was opposition that was not well coordinated or led. Not therefore much of a challenge, especially since Buckingham and Richmond were the only peers to be involved. That was the key point. 
To unseat a king, they needed more noble support, and they did not have it. Notably, Lord Stanley had sided with the king. Henry Tudor, after thinking that he was about to write a new chapter in English history, was forced to flee in the knowledge that he would still be just a casual footnote in the chapter entitled Richard III. And Richard would now hunt him down in Brittany and put an end to any hope of the establishment of a new Tudor dynasty on the throne of England. Well, he could try at least. <laughs> <laughs>